Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Welcome to the Yahoo News' Climate Crisis Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ben Adler, here with co-host David Knowles. We're editors at Yahoo News, and we're here in Glasgow, Scotland, covering the UN Climate Change Conference. David, you recently interviewed Samantha Power, who's the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., currently the head of USAID, which oversees the distribution of foreign aid. Can you tell us about why she's here and what you discussed when you spoke to her? Well, as you know from your reporting, Ben, foreign aid for developing nations is a big part of the puzzle here for how we're going to lower emissions and keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature rise. The reason for that is that countries like the United States, here in Scotland, you know, developed nations, they saw a standard of living come into being by burning fossil fuels. Places like in Africa, you know, nations that were under the thumb of colonialism in various parts of the world, they did not have the same standard of living, the same rise. And now they're looking to modernize and to join the rest of the world. The problem with that is that we need them to do so using renewable sources of energy. And that's an interesting trick that's going to have to be pulled off in the coming years. To do so, nations around the world are pledging and have pledged for years now to donate up to $100 billion per year for things like adaptation and mitigation. And that also includes figuring out how to help nations make critical investments so that they become carbon neutral. And Ms. Power, Administrator Power, was really quite articulate about the challenges that she faces, particularly with dealing with corruption in some of these nations, these developing nations, but also how to convince people back home in the states that this is something that is is worth doing. So it's just one aspect, and I think Samantha Power is, is kind of the, the person who maybe knows the most about this. Thank you, Administrator Power, for speaking with us today, and welcome to COP. Great to be here. Um, first question is, um, President Biden, in addition to laying out how the United States plans to halve its emissions by 2030, also pledged to donate $3 billion annually, starting in 2024, to developing nations. Can you explain to Americans who might be skeptical about giving money to other countries and some members of Congress, for that matter, why those funds are essential? Absolutely. I mean, the program he announced is called the Prepare Program, and it's an adaptation and resilience emergency program, effectively, because of the climate shocks and effects that so many developing countries are facing. As you know, President Biden framed it as our obligation 
But I think another way to look at it is that the more that we are able to lift up uh, emerging markets and developing countries, the more there will be markets for American goods, uh, our supply chains, of course, even as we diversify them, many of them are going to extend into those countries. So uh, the quicker a country can recover from a natural disaster, uh, the more that it can maintain uh, its agricultural sector, notwithstanding floods and droughts, like, fundamentally that's going to be better for Americans over time. Can you, uh, just, just to sort of bring it down to a base level here for our, our audience, um, why is it that poorer nations, developing countries, are at greater risk from climate change than richer ones? Well, every country has its own topography and its own democratic, its own demographics. Um, you can visually understand why, for example, Pacific Island states that are just actually being increasingly submerged underwater, uh, why that is an issue. Uh, when I was at the United Nations as ambassador, it was some of the most moving, poignant conversations I would have would be with the ambassadors of those countries, who a couple of whom were actually wondering would they be member states of the United Nations in the future? Would they actually have populations on the islands? Would the islands be habitable such that they would still be actually there under the flag of their nation? And that is the level of acute concern and need. There are other countries that uh, where you just, if you're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa, just talking about those increases in temperature that all of us are experiencing around the world, uh, they are, those increases are higher in Africa than they are anywhere else. Uh, and the effects on countries that may start, you know, at communities that start uh, on the edge, that may have just made that development progress, may have just sent the first member of a family to school, but are primarily rural or agrarian. When that drought hits, there's nothing else. There's not the fallback. Um, so, Rural communities that are agriculturally dependent, in particular, are, are uh, at, at great risk. I think it just comes to do, how much resilience do you have in your system? And developed countries, we don't feel like we have a lot as we see our subways flooded and our, uh, the droughts on our own farms, but we have so much more resilience built in through insurance schemes, through excess capital, uh, you know, through uh, a FEMA that's able to swoop in and, and offer emergency support to families. Much of that infrastructure does not exist in the developing world. When we talk about uh, equity and, and climate change, uh, of course, historically, most of the emissions that have been put into the atmosphere have come from you know, the developed world. Um, and the impacts are disproportionately going to fall on the developing world. Um, is this also something that's tied to the legacy of colonialism, do you think? Um, well, I think that. Certainly, our sense of responsibility to developing countries is one that President Biden frontally owned, I think, in his remarks here, and just said, you know, look, it's, it's not enough for us to kind of start the clock now. In the negotiations around the Paris Agreement, this came up a lot. It wasn't framed so much uh, in terms of any particular countries historical past or colonial relationship, uh, for example, with uh, a, a developing country, it was framed much more as, wait, you all got to develop this way. Uh, you went ahead and did it. Now we're feeling the effects, and you're telling us that we need to focus our resource, our scarce resources on curbing emissions. We can't. 
And, and that divide between developed and developing countries over this sense of responsibility, um, you know, it has really impeded uh, progress, I think, which could have come sooner had we been able to get past that. So I think uh, a couple things have happened in Paris and then since Paris. For starters, again, this commitment to mobilize $100 billion of financing, creation of a green climate fund, announcements like the one that, that President Biden made around prepare to get up to $3 billion a year in our adaptation financing. So it's just to, to, to have developed countries and richer countries uh, taking resources and recognizing the harms that are already being experienced by developing countries. But at the same time, you have a country like India that for the first time at this COP announced that it was uh, going to get to net zero, yes, by 2070, but nonetheless, the first time it has been on that path, itself recognizing that irrespective of how we got here, uh, India is going to be a, a huge carbon emitter, uh, the, one of the largest in the world, if not the largest, and that if it doesn't do its part in mitigation and in transition to renewables, um, fundamentally, the amount of adaptation financing that's going to be needed is is uh, is just going to go well beyond uh, you know what what can be afforded by developed and developing countries alike. Right. Let's talk about in developing nations that are going to be hit with these climate change uh, effects the hardest. There's also an overlapping problem with corruption. So how can Americans be assured that the funds that they donate won't just go down the drain or, or get used in a way that's not going to really do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, and I think there's more salience to that question in light of what has happened recently in Afghanistan, seeing the investment of so many resources over such a long period of time and, and feeling at least in the governmental sector as if, uh, you know, not, none of those investments made a dent in the corruption problem. I will say that in the Afghan context, those investments made a huge difference in terms of uh, maternal mortality and infant mortality, in terms of girls' education. Uh, but the core issue of corruption really impeded uh, the kind of state building uh, that many Afghans had hoped would happen in, in that 20-year period. So that's on people's minds as we you know, toss around these very large numbers and make these substantial commitments. I think that it's really important for donor countries to do what USAID and the United States have done which is to elevate the anti-corruption agenda, uh, really, and, and mainstream it across uh, development financing. And that is something that USAID is doing actually for the first time this year. President Biden is the first American president to declare fighting corruption a national security imperative. And of course, as you know, he considers the climate crisis a national security threat, so they're very, very related in the, in the Short term, uh, you know, you have to have a lot of auditing, a lot of vetting. You have to work with trusted partners. USAID has relationships with many developing countries that date back the entire 60 years of our history. We have missions in 80 countries. I think there is a sense of where money can be well spent and where there is a risk of waste, fraud, or other, other forms of abuse. But I was struck yesterday, I met with the Zambian Minister for Green, uh, green Economy and the Environment and Zambia has just experienced a, a presidential transition that comes on the heels of rampant systemic corruption. And we were talking about how USA could support Zambia in reforestation uh, because their forests have just been gutted. And that, of course, is a large source of emissions and destroys habitat and, and uh, 
all, all you know, so, so many nature-based uh, economic sectors. And what was, what was so clear was that you couldn't talk about reforestation or protection of nature or even protection of agriculture without talking about the fight against corruption. And so even as we have these conversations about adaptation and about how we uh, you know, ensure that countries have access to drought-resistant seeds, we also have to continue as USAID to be strengthening accountability uh, in these institutions, building the rule of law. Uh, and so this is what's so, so challenging uh, about climate is climate touches everything, but so too does governance. And our investments will not be as well spent in a government you know, that is allowing its forests to be, <laughs> to be trafficked, that, that where you don't have accountability uh, for uh, the stealing of natural resources uh, and, and, and putting them into the coffers of people in leadership positions, as it will be once the rule of law and that accountability is, is built in. So Zambia is a great example of, yes, we have a forestation initiative, that's really important. We're gonna invest more in agriculture, but at the same time, uh, to, to work with the government to put in place the political reforms that are needed to make sure that those dollars are well spent for the sake of the Zambian people. A lot of what we're hearing here at COP is about climate financing in the form of loans. Is that the model that is going to really solve what's coming with climate change adaption issues, uh, or, or do we need to be rethinking the loan picture here? Well, so many countries right now are saddled with debt. Again, talking to the Zambian leadership, uh, he said that 40 percent uh, of state revenue is now dedicated to servicing debt that was accrued uh, again under a, a prior administration, and that is maybe excessive on the on the on the higher side of the spectrum. But many many countries, particularly with COVID, have just taken on more and more debt in order to just keep things afloat. So loans cannot be the only answer. It, it, to the degree that USAID you know participates in arranging or facilitating loan, uh, loans uh, to state institutions, we try to do so in a manner that is catalytic, where it's a modest loan, a kind of first mover loan, and then other forms of finance come in on the top, or we offer loan guarantees in order to de-risk an environment, again, to make the, the environment more attractive uh, to, to private capital to come in. I think adaptation has been really challenging to draw private sector financing to. And, uh, but we see that the same thing would have been said a generation ago about mitigation financing, about renewables. You know, people said, oh, there's no, you know, where's the money in this? Well, now it is, you know, one of the most lucrative sectors there are and, and um, you know, it's much less important for public finance to be spent in that because there's money to be made. So we have to think in the adaptation space as well as USAID is a development agency that brings public finance to bear. Uh, what are the ways to open up the private sector's eyes to the opportunities, the, 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 the economic opportunities that exist in the adaptation space? Because if we were to stay in the current uh, ratio of 95% of financing to mitigation and renewables and only 5% to adaptation, uh, yes, we'll be mitigating our, our longer-term emissions problem, but we won't be supporting the people who are in dire need in the here and now. I want to switch gears a tiny bit, which is, um, given what we saw recently with the influx of Haitian migrants uh, at the U.S. border, is it necessary for the United States to rethink how it handles asylum applications due to climate change displacement in the coming years? 
I mean, I would refer you to DHS on, on questions related to asylum adjudication, but I will say as USAID, a, a country that provides assistance in many, of the, in many of the countries and in the whole region through which those migrants uh, pass in order to try to, to reach the United States, um, that right now the, the double whammy of COVID and climate is setting back development gains stymieing livelihoods and economic opportunities and meaning that what we're seeing now is something to which there's not a, a, a three-point plan you know to resolve we have a big plan for example in the three central american countries guatemala honduras and el salvador to get at root causes of migration that involves investments in crime reduction livelihoods agriculture uh, lawful pathways to get to the United States and work and then be able to come home. All those investments are incredibly important. Um, but what we're seeing is the demographics of who's arriving at the border is now getting much more varied, coming from many, many uh, parts of the, of the Southern Hemisphere. And, um, and you know, that is going to require uh, greater investments, more, again, private sector capital, I hope, uh, in, in enhancing economic prospects in those countries. Um, but right now there's a big gap between the global need, the, the COVID climate nexus, and conflict in many parts of the world, less in Latin America, but that uh, those needs and the public sector financing that has been brought to bear. USAID is again trying to, to meet that moment uh, as best we can, but most other donors have not actually increased their funding um, you know, to provide foreign assistance or to invest in livelihoods. Uh, during the pandemic, and, and uh, so that it won't work if it's the United States alone uh, trying to, to provide that, that support in this hour of great need. And lastly, um, just one week in and what you've seen so far with the pledges from different countries and uh, you know, different businesses, business leaders, yeah. how, are you, how are you feeling about what's coming ahead? Do you think we're making progress in terms of what needs to be done, or you see us still very far away from where we need to be? I think what's really important about this COP is how central adaptation and resilience have been uh, to the conversations. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about how the private sector hasn't really gravitated toward those uh, initiatives. I'm hopeful that this could mark an inflection point, a turning point, where five cops from now will look back and think, ah, that was the moment where private sector money and private financing and international financial institution money began really to flow into the adaptation space. So that's hard to, it's hard to know. Again, attention is necessary but not sufficient, uh, and the devil will be in the details here as we go forward. I think in the mitigation space, quite an, an enormous amount has been achieved. I mean, 26 countries enhancing the ambition in their NDCs. India now declaring that net zero objective. Again, I know uh, people are critical of how far out it is, but think about the entrepreneurship, that just knowing that that's where India is going, I, I suspect that timeline is gonna get compressed a lot. Um, the, the methane pledge, which I think three months ago, there was no methane pledge. Right. Yeah, a week ago, there were 70 countries who were party to a methane pledge to bring down methane emissions by 30%, and now we're at, I think, more than 105 countries and counting 
The fact on that forests and nature-based solutions, I think, are more central this year is also historic in, and again, the devil's in the details as we go forward, but the fact that um, more than 100 countries that account for 85% of the world's forests have committed to stop deforestation by 2030, again, that's major. Um, do I wish it were 2025? Of course, uh, we all do. But, um, but I think, you know, embedding adaptation and mitigation concerns as kind of a design feature also as people recover from COVID um, uh, as a design feature. We have to build in adaptation or resilience to our clean energy sources as well. We were I was just came from a panel where we talked about solar investments in India and then how those solar panels end up in a pool of water effectively drowning. And so we don't think about, we think about resilience as kind of separate from clean energy, but the clean energy technologies, the insurance schemes, all of those need to be brought to bear, again, on the front end of, of these investments we're making. And given that Sub-Saharan Africa is still faces dire energy poverty, we have this wonderful opportunity to bring renewables to leapfrog the old dirty technologies to bring renewables to bear but now also to embed an, an attention to adaptation on the front end. So, so you know, I'm, I'm, I leave COP you know, much more hopeful, much more exposed, again, to the synergy sort of across sectors, but also with a long to-do list. <laughs>